Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we come back to this chapter dedicated to the subject of church discipline. It's in fact the longest section in the New Testament, the longest out of many that deal with this subject. Church discipline, which really has to do with the confrontation and the decisive action the churches are called to take against those in their midst who are living in sin. Now, the moment you begin to talk about something like that or begin to discuss that kind of action, you're normally going to hear some sort of response from people about how unloving and and how that's none of our business and how that's something between that person and God and how we shouldn't meddle into things like that. That is their responsibility. Well, interestingly... God's Word declares that if that is your attitude, it's not because you're so loving. It is because, as Paul says in verse 2 of this chapter, you're so arrogant. You're arrogant because you are assuming that you can run the church the way you want. You're assuming that somehow you can tolerate this sin and not be affected. You're assuming that somehow you know what's better for this person than God does. God's Word's been very clearly laid out for us in Matthew 18 and in a number of passages throughout the New Testament, calling on us when there is blatant and flagrant sin in our midst, that the church is to take decisive and in some occasions public action against the sinner. This is what we call church discipline. And Paul's writing to the church at Corinth precisely because they had refused to do this. There was a man in their midst who was living in just this kind of flagrant and blatant sin. He was was living with his father's wife. We assume that to be his stepmom since it's not called his mother. He's living in open sin with her and the church is doing nothing about it. In fact, they're trying to tolerate it in their midst. And Paul is writing this letter as a warning to them about the impact of that kind of decision in their congregation writing to tell them about their arrogance, writing to tell them in verse 6 about their their selfish boasting, writing to remind them of the ways of the Lord, writing to encourage them to take decisive action against this man. We may live in a society that takes sort of the unbiblical notion in terms of spirituality that we're all supposed to live and let live, but the Scripture is utterly clear. We can't do that. And we can't do that for for a number of reasons that are spelled out for us most clearly in this passage. As I said, this is one of the longest passages in the New Testament dealing with the issue of church discipline. Paul uses in this passage that that dramatic statement that we are, when this sin is uncovered, we are to deliver such people over to Satan. That's his phrase for putting them out of the church, for dealing decisively with sin within the congregation. And in the rare case that people won't repent for disassociating and excluding them from the life of the body. Now, as we've been going through this, Paul has been reminding the the Corinthian church, no doubt, of what he had already taught them from our Lord's own words in Matthew chapter 18 about church discipline. And as he's been going out through this, he's spelling out for them the processes and the purposes of discipline all over again. And as we follow along, we've been highlighting the principles to which Paul is referring throughout this section. Last week, we talked about 
First of all, the sin that discipline targets. The sin that discipline targets, that is the habitual, unrepentant, flagrant kinds of sins. These aren't the occasional mishaps. These aren't the mistakes. These aren't the occasional stumblings that believers may have. These are the result of hardened hearts, steeped rebellion. And so consequently, these are typically patterns of behavior that are emerging in someone's life. That's not to say there's not a a call for confrontation. If someone maybe commits a sin and you're aware of it and you may need to go to them. But, but what we're talking about here is the inevitable result when someone has followed the Lord's design in Matthew 18 and they've gone to someone privately and they've talked to them one-on-one. They've refused to listen to that one-on-one confrontation and so you've taken two or three others with, with you. And even now, you've taken the third step, which our Lord talks about there in Matthew 18. You've, you've made it public. You've announced before the church that this confrontation is going on. And then finally, even that is not enough to dissuade them and to make them fearful. And so finally, the fourth step of discipline is you, you put them out of the church. They are to be to you, as our Lord said, as a Gentile and a tax collector. This is, this is really this, the, the final step that Paul is referring to in this chapter. And when we're really reaching that level, that point of discipline, what we're really talking about, someone who has dug in their heels, who has hardened their heart against confrontation, someone who has an unrepentant pattern of behavior in their life, in other words. After that, Paul sort of moves to talk about the authority that discipline claims because we all understand that when you come to talk about someone else's sin, you can't ignore your own. And so there's a, there's a tendency for us to think, you know, who am I to be, to be grappling with, with this issue and to be dealing and be calling out someone else's sin when I've got my own? In fact, that is the godly response. We're told that before you can deal with the speck in your brother's eye, you've got to deal with the log in your own. And so there is, a, there is a sort of a natural reluctance to do anything about it. There's a natural reluctance to get involved with someone's life. And that's why our Lord said, look... You, when you operate in this way, when he gives his step-by-step plan there in Matthew 18, he caps it off at the very end of it by saying, look, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, I'm there in your midst. In other words, when you, when you do everything that I've commanded you to do, and you have two or three witnesses as I've commanded you to have, when you do all of that according to my plan in my name, it's as if I'm standing right there with you so that the Lord can say, if you bind it on earth, it's bound in heaven. If you loose it on earth, it's loosed in heaven. All of these are the profound statements of authority that the Lord gives and which Paul refers to even in this chapter. He says, look, when you're gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus... And I'm, my spirit is there with you. We're talking about, in other words, this is, this is the public gathering of the church. He says, in the power or the authority of the Lord Jesus, you deliver this man to Satan. All that, all that is a reference back to everything the Lord had said in Matthew 18. You see his name, you see his power, you see his authority, because this is a terrifying, terrifying process. People wouldn't do it honestly, unless they had those kinds of assurances that if this was, in fact, not just the Lord's will, but comes with His full authority. What is bound on earth has heaven's full authority, Jesus says. All that sort of brings us today to verse 5, where Paul really 
moves beyond the sin that discipline targets and the authority that discipline claims. And finally, uh, excuse me, not finally, but next takes us to the purpose that discipline pursues. I mean, if you're going to enter into this, this is so important that you understand that you, that you grasp that what you're really after isn't just the mockery and shame of someone, and it certainly isn't the self-righteous exaltation of yourself. What you're ultimately after, Paul states in verse 5, there at the end, everything he's calling for was so that this man's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the clear goal of this kind of dramatic and public action, and by the way, the clear goal of every other preceding step all the way from the personal one-on-one confrontation is always been to win your brother for the sake of eternity, for the sake of Christ. The clear goal is spiritual. It is salvific. And even here at the public, the point of, of public discipline, that is the clear goal in mind, even as you bring someone before the, the church, because quite honestly, at that point, after you've gone through months and sometimes maybe even years of confrontation in someone's life, there's serious question about their salvation at that point. I mean, there's serious question if you have someone who you repeatedly take God's word to repeatedly spell out to them what God's demands are, and they repeatedly refuse to yield or bow their knee to the Lord. There's serious question about where they stand before the Lord. We certainly don't know their hearts. No one knows anyone's heart except the Lord. We're not judging their hearts. We're judging their actions. And their actions give every indication that they're not a believer. And so discipline is to serve the purpose of making a definitive statement to the church, to the world, and to the person who is, who is the candidate of discipline, the person that is in rebellion. It's to make a clear statement to all those audiences that this person, no matter what they say with their lips, they disclaim with their life. That they have, despite their profession of faith, they have no legitimate claim to call themselves a Christian. That's what, that's what you're doing. You're trying to make it clear to the church, you're making it clear to the world, and you're trying to make it clear to them. Because at this point, they've refused to acknowledge it. A very clear assumption by the Apostle Paul here is that this man isn't saved. In fact, he says, he says the reason that you're doing this is so that he will be saved. He very clearly assumes that, that it would be very rare for a true Christian to go this far in the process, to have this, this much of a hardened heart against the Lord. It's possible, I guess, that a Christian could be so steeped in rebellion or could, could walk down for a brief time some brazen pathway of rebellion and and be duped by the evil one and be taken in by their own desires. It's possible that a Christian could do that, and in most cases, they would have repented long ago under the disciplining hand of the Lord. It's this, this is really what Paul's aiming at, is that they, this 
person, this man, whoever he is, is most likely self-deceived. He's self-deceived. And so you see, discipline is really, public discipline is really making the clearest statement possible publicly is really the most loving thing you can do for this guy. To rattle him out of his self-deception. To make as definitive statement as possible that he doesn't belong to the Lord. And if he does, then he has tried the Lord's patience to such a level that this drastic level of discipline is necessary. This is the point of Paul's reference in the beginning of verse 5 when he talks about delivering this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now there's a lot of question about exactly what Paul's talking about in that. I mean, because if you know anything about Paul and anything about the Scripture, you know that Paul uses the word flesh in more than one way. In some contexts, Flesh means the material body, right? But in other contexts, flesh simply means the sinful tendency of our nature. And so people wonder, is Paul talking about here the destruction of his body? Or is Paul talking about simply the eradication of his sinful tendencies? Well, the key anytime you're reading scripture, and particularly when you're dealing with this word, is you judge a word's meaning by its context, and with flesh particularly, you most often will understand it by seeing what it's set in contrast to. So, of course, here, what's it contrasted with? It's contrasted with spirit, obviously, but more particularly, the contrast is between the loss of his flesh and the salvation of his spirit. That's what Paul's contrasting. And the point is that the act of discipline initiates the loss of his flesh. You're doing this so that his flesh will be destroyed, so that his spirit will be saved. seems pretty plain, in other words, that what Paul's talking about here is flesh and spirit in the sense of material and immaterial. Same way, by the way, he uses it In 1 Corinthians 15, same book here, he comes later on in this chapter and he talks about our resurrected bodies and he makes a contrast between our material body and our spiritual body. He makes a contrast between that which is temporal and that which is eternal. I make all that emphasis because there are a number of people who would suggest that what Paul's talking about here is the destruction of this man's fleshly nature. That really what, what you're talking about here isn't any kind of outward circumstances or anything, anything circumstantial happening to him, but you're talking about the destruction of his fleshly nature. Well, that begs a question, at least in my mind. How exactly is separation from the church supposed to aid in the eradication of someone's sinful nature? I mean, that would run contrary to everything else you see in Scripture. Contrary to everything taught about battling flesh, the flesh isn't destroyed, in other words, by further indulging it. The flesh isn't destroyed, certainly, or it's not inhibited in any way by separating yourself from the preaching of God's Word and the fellowship of the saints and the ministry of the Spirit. If anything, that's a recipe for 
for increasing or, or accelerating your plunge into a fleshly lifestyle. Nowhere in Scripture will you ever be given the idea that by separating yourself from the church, somehow you're going to become more godly or your flesh is going to be somehow diminished. Everything in church would, excuse me, everything in the Scripture would seem to indicate that if you take that step, you're taking a step down a pathway to further sin. No, what Paul's contrasting here isn't the fleshly nature and the spiritual nature. He's contrasting the material versus the immaterial. The man's material temporal life, which is going to pass away, set in contrast with the more important spiritual life. And what he's really talking about is this final step of discipline in which a man is, or a woman, and whoever it is under discipline, is handed over to Satan, delivered to Satan. That's a phrase that's used in the Scripture for, for delivering someone over to governing or uh, authoritative powers for the sake of punishment. For example, it was used of Jesus Himself when it says He was handed over to the chief priest or at another place He was handed over to Pilate. It's used in the Scripture to speak about martyrs being handed over to those that would kill them. Even over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Paul uses this term again to speak about handing over two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were sowing seeds of false doctrine within the church. And he says he handed them over to Satan so that they would learn not to continue to blaspheme. What this is really talking about is the exclusion of this sinning person from the community of God, that is the church, and leaving them to the community of the world, which is under the authority and power of Satan, his principalities and his powers. He's called the God of this world. He's called the ruler of this world. He's called the prince of the power of the air. And so this person is put out of the church the community of God with His loving concern for one another, with His ministry of gifts for one another, for His sacrificial support of one another, for His prayer, for all these other things. He's put out of the church with His loving concern for one another, and He's put back out into the world where Satan and His principalities and His powers are still at work destroying people's lives. That's a... Um, it's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought indeed, but in reality, it takes place all the time. It's not just people who are excluded from the life of the church who are under the aim of Satan. It's not just those people that Satan is targeting. You understand that we live in a world that is dominated by the evil one. And he is in the process of doing all he can to destroy everyone's lives. That's what Satan's about. And if you are deceived and if you think that somehow it is the, 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 the role of God or the church or religion to destroy your life and your happiness, you have it completely backwards. It is Satan who is intent in every way on destroying you, your family, your life, your happiness, your emotions, everything. 
And so this is just simply delivering someone over to that purpose. But not ultimately just to punish them. It's because all the other graces of the Lord, the confrontation from His Word, the ministry of the Spirit through the saints, the preaching of His Word, all the other graces of the Lord haven't really had their effect. And so there must come an unraveling an ultimate unraveling of this person's life. And we've seen it. It's heartbreaking. We shed tears. We grieve. As we stand back and watch these people who are pursuing a pathway of sin, who think that somehow they have grabbed the world by the tail and that they're the masters of their own soul. And they cast off the Lord, they cast off His church, And we stand back and we watch as their life falls apart. This is, of course, not dissimilar to what happened to Job. Remember Job chapter 2, Satan challenged God, stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand only spares life. The Lord's still sovereign. To hand him over to Satan doesn't mean that the Lord loses control. The Lord still set the boundary. You can't take his life. But the Lord gave, he gave dominion, if you will, or power, or he removed, we might say, his protecting hand from Job so that Satan could do what he longs to do for everyone. He could absolutely assail and attack Job so that he suffered in his family and in his life and in his body course in that case it wasn't because of his personal rebellion or sin it was a unique and personal test that the lord had for job but this is a a parallel to what takes place to the person who's put out of the church their life unravels their life falls apart they're delivered over to satan paul knows by the way if you have your bibles look with me over at first corinthians chapter 11 in verse 28 Paul notes the same type of pattern that was going on in the lives of some believers in this congregation already. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. He's talking about the Lord's table. He's talking about communion here. And he's talking about those who were coming to the communion table acting as if they're celebrating the Lord's forgiveness over sin and His sacrifice for sin, while at the same time they were holding on and cherishing sin in their hearts. And so Paul's warning them here, look, you need to examine your own heart. You need to examine your own life. Because he says there in verse 29, if anyone eats and drinks without discerning the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why, verse 30, many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Some of you, he says, have fallen asleep. That's colloquialism for died. In other words, there were people who were were so flagrant in their rebellion against the Lord, they were willing to come and put on a show as if they were thankful for a sacrifice for sin while at the same time they were holding on and cherishing sin. And God wouldn't be mocked. And he had, already, he had already enacted his judgment, Paul says in verse 29. 
You're eating and drinking judgment for yourself. In fact, he goes on in verse 31. If we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's not going to allow his name to be mocked in the church. And so he's going to take decisive action. And in the case of some of these people, they were facing already the physical consequences of their rebellion. Sickness, weakness, and in some cases, death. I mean, this is the obvious lesson from Ananias and Sapphira, right? The early days of the church, Acts chapter 5. You have two people who, who want to parade around as being generous and giving they wanted to have that kind of image, and so they lied about how much they gave to the church. Seemingly insignificant, we would think, but the Lord takes seriously sin. And He struck them down dead on the spot. This isn't unprecedented. This is, in fact, very precedented. You can go back to the Old Testament and look at the life of Achan, the life of other people who tried to introduce sin into, into the camp. And the Lord, the Lord called on Israel to act decisively against them. If you don't see the value of it, it's because you don't understand the wretchedness of sin. When the church delivers someone over to Satan, what God is doing is He is removing his protective hand over the church, he is permitting Satan to attack and gradually weaken their mental, emotional, and even sometimes their physical health. I mean, you can see people sometimes become literally irrational in their rebellion and their sin. They destroy all the relationships around them. They destroy their career. They destroy their family. And all the while, the Lord is using this to strip away any kind of false notion that they might have had about being His child. I mean, the perfect illustration of this is, is really the prodigal son. Remember that, Luke 15, that story? Here's a guy who's living in his father's home. And he might sort of imagine that because he has something of a plush lifestyle that maybe this is because of God's favor because quite honestly, he's living under the care and the protection and the provision of his father. I mean, he lives in a home that is, that is comfortable. He lives in a home that is orderly. He lives in a home that is blessed because the Lord has blessed his father. And so he's He's basking in all of this until one day what has always been down in his heart surfaces and he comes to his father and says, I want my inheritance now. And he takes his inheritance and he goes out from underneath that protective care and he goes out and he lives a profligate lifestyle and then, and then the reality of who he is in his heart comes crashing home to him as his life unravels and unwinds until one day he finds himself feeding pigs. He's reached the, the rock bottom. And any notion in his mind that he might have been under the favor and care of the Lord has got to be eradicated at that point. In fact, the scripture says it's at that point that he came to his senses. 
And he goes back and he tells his father, I'm not worthy to even be called your son. He's changed. This is, this is what really Paul has in mind here. The absolute unraveling, the shaking down, the destruction of this person's life. Not out of hatred. Not at all. Quite the opposite. That of love. You see, when we bring someone to this point, we haven't stopped loving them. We're doing this as painful as it may be precisely because we do love them. Because we so long to see them shaken out of their self-deception. In fact, look with me over at 1 John. John deals with a very similar situation. 1 John chapter 5. John is writing to a group of people who had experienced a, a break in fellowship, a separation. Back in 1 John 2.19, we're actually told that there were a group of people in this church who went out from among them. And Paul says they went out from among you because they weren't part of you. He's already sort of addressed the issue, but... When you come back to chapter 5, he begins to write to them about prayer. And he says in verse 14, This is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we ask of him. He's giving them sort of a, 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 a bolster in their confidence of prayer. And then in verse 16, he illustrates this in a very particular way, a very specific example out of their own situation, probably because some of them have been praying this specific prayer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there's a sin that does not lead to death. You see, he moves seamlessly from this discussion about prayer to this discussion about the person who is, who is pursuing a sin that leads to death. Probably because this is exactly what they were praying about. These people had gone out from their midst, and here they are, they're doing what what most true believers do. They agonize in prayer and out of love for this person who's gone out. I mean, we've all experienced that. We've all felt that burden as someone's gone out, and we see them, and our heart breaks for them, and we we yearn for them. We have maybe a little bit of what the Apostle Paul had in, in Romans chapter 9 when he said, look, I could wish myself accursed. For the sake of my kinsmen, my brethren. He's saying, look, for the rest of the Jews, I yearn, I long, I labor probably in prayer for their salvation. And so here these loving Christians are, and people have separated themselves from the fellowship, and they're no doubt now praying, God, give them repentance. God, show them the truth. God, bring them back into fellowship. In fact, this is what every Christian ought to be doing. This is what we ought to be doing. This is why when we take some public act of discipline, it is a heartbreaking affair. We've already labored for weeks and months in prayer over the situation. We continue to pray. I still, to this day, pray for every person that's ever been disciplined out of this church. (coughs) 
We ought to be praying for those who are in sin. And what John is saying, God responds. God responds to the prayers of His children. He responds on behalf of those who are sinning. We are to be involved in this operation of saving souls and play our part, not just in confrontation, but also in the prayer for these brothers. Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt, saving others by snatching them out of the fire to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Keep yourself in the mercy of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. And it is that, is that keeping yourself in God's love and God's mercy that, that motivates you and, and spurs you to continue to reach out to those who are wrapped up in sin and are stained with sin and you snatch them as out of the fire. John's telling them, keep praying. Keep praying because God hears your prayer. But there is, he says in verse 17, there is a sin that leads to death. There is a, there is a level of rebellion that unfortunately people sometimes won't turn from. And John's saying, I'm not promising you that every prayer that you lift up is necessarily going to be in accordance to God's will because sometimes God's will is that a person reach the absolute bottom, even the final judgment. He's not talking about spiritual death here because Scripture tells us every sin, every sin leads to spiritual death, right? The wages of sin is death. All sin leads to the death of the person spiritually. It leads to the death of their, their, their heart and their emotions and their family and their lives in so many ways. There's a spiritual death that's a part of sin. That's why Adam and Eve, whenever they first sinned in the garden, they didn't drop dead on the spot because the wages of sin, God had warned that in the day that they eat of the forbidden fruit, they would die. He was talking about their spiritual death. They would actually not physically die for hundreds of years. But the moment they sinned, they died spiritually. Sin brings death, always. But what John's talking about here is a different kind of death. He's not distinguishing between some sins that have no consequences and some that do. He's not talking about some sins that lead to spiritual death and some that don't. No, he's talking about some sins that lead to physical death. He's saying there are some people, some so-called brothers or sisters, who so harden their heart against the Lord, who are so rebellious in their life, that God actually enacts the severest form of judgment against them. And John's just saying, look, God hears your prayers, God uses them in people's lives, but there's no promise 
that every person will repent. This is what Paul's talking about when he talks about delivering someone over to Satan. He's talking about the judgment of God in their life. A judgment that in some cases has to be severe because the rebellion is severe. The reality that though they may believe that they can sin with impunity, though they may believe that they can escape accountability, though they may believe that they can somehow dodge God's divine law, they'll be mistaken. God will bring them into judgment. This is the ultimate purpose of discipline, is to sober them back to that reality, to pull them out of their self-deception, to bring them into such a high level of discipline that as their life begins to unravel like the prodigal son, they have opportunity to repent and hopefully come back to the Lord by the dire circumstances they're in and also by the prayers of God's saints. Well, Paul has pointed out the sin, the discipline targets, the authority, the discipline claims. He's kind of referenced the purpose that it pursues, the salvation of the purpose person's soul. In verse 6, he gets to another principle, and that's the purity that discipline preserves. The purity that discipline preserves. He tells them, 1 Corinthians 5, 6 there, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? These Corinthians have apparently actually been boasting about how welcoming and how loving and maybe how they were tolerating this. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe it was because they wanted to boast about their love. Maybe they wanted to boast about some sort of false unity. Some people go around and talk about all this unity they have and you go into their churches and you realize people aren't unified on anything. They have all kinds of disunity, but they have some sort of superficial surface unity that they might boast about. But whatever it is that they were boasting about, Paul says they were doing the exact opposite of what God would have them to do. And he says, it's not good. You ought to be ashamed of how you're behaving and how you're conducting yourself in the church. You ought to be ashamed when you minimize sin and you tolerate sin like this. You ought to be ashamed that you haven't recognized the destructive power of this kind of life in your midst. Because that's really what he's talking about. He's talking about, with a sort of cliche statement here, the the infecting power of one rebellious life within the congregation, within the midst of the congregation, he says it this way, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now, I don't know a lot about baking. I'll just be honest with you. My wife can attest to that. I remember one Christmas, our um, tradition is on Christmas, we always have biscuits and whipped cream. Sort of tradition that goes back in her family to the Depression days when that was like the most special treat they could have. So I thought one Christmas, I'm going to really bless my family. I'm going to make the biscuits. So I got up and I put all the stuff in there, the flour and maybe, I can't remember, an egg. And then I went, to the, I went to the cupboard and I found the baking soda. And I put the baking soda in because that's how you make a biscuit. And I put it in the oven, cooked it up. And they looked 
a little flat, but we put them on the plates anyway and took a bite into them. And that was the only Christmas we didn't celebrate with biscuits and whipped cream. <laughs> they were inedible. Um, so, I mean, I don't know a lot about baking, but I do understand leaven, right? You, when, you, when you get a lump of dough, you, you sprinkle. You don't put a whole bag of leaven in that, right? You, you put a, a sprinkle, you put a little bit of leaven, and what happens? That little tiny bit... <laughs> will eventually go throughout the entire lump, right? It spreads. It grows. It multiplies. The point is, it doesn't stay small. And that's the image that Paul's bringing up here. You need to understand that what you may think is a small thing doesn't stay small. What you think may be a sprinkle and maybe can be tolerated and maybe can be withstood, doesn't stay that way. That's the image that he's given. We sort of have in our own culture these cliches, like one bad apple spoils the bunch, right? We understand that from a a physiological perspective. What he's saying from a spiritual perspective, you may boast and you may be arrogant, you may be naive, but you need to understand that when a church tolerates sin in their midst, it doesn't stay small. It may be one person, it may be one life, but it doesn't stay there. You say, well, it's not going to affect me. I'm going to be okay. I mean, I can, I can love that person just the way they are, and I'm not going to be affected. Paul would say, you're arrogant. You're arrogant. It will absolutely permeate a congregation, it will eventually weaken the resolve of people within the congregation who see not only sin being ignored, but in some cases, they actually see sin being rewarded. They see deception, they see malice, they see manipulation, they see all those things at work and they see it being rewarded. Church, in other words, that fails to recognize this, doesn't understand the power of sin, the impact of one sinful believer in a congregation. By the way, it's good to note what Paul says here because there are a number of people who have sort of brought up or resurrected this issue of discipline within the church today, but they've tried to contain it or reduce it to nothing more than a matter of record-keeping. In other words, in their minds, discipline is nothing more than the addition or removal of people from an official church role. And so if you discipline someone, what you do is you either quietly behind the scenes or maybe in some closed meeting, some some sort of church gathering and in discussing membership, you just simply remove people from the official role. But... At the same time, you still allow them to operate in the church. You still allow them to fellowship in the church. You still allow them to come to all the functions and do everything else that that any other person would be allowed to do. People that do that, they they fail to recognize that what Paul has in mind here isn't some record-keeping. He has in mind the leavening influence of sin. Very similar to what he says over in 1 Corinthians 15. Bad company corrupts good morals. You may deceive yourself and think 
that the people you hang around don't affect you, but they do. That the people that you keep company with and fellowship don't affect you, but they do. Paul isn't concerned with some official record of members or non-members. He's, he's worried about fellowship. He's worried about leavening influence. And so it's not surprising that discipline would be rare today when the church doesn't have a genuine desire for purity. It won't be a legitimate desire to deal with impurity. When the church values size over sincerity, if the church values growth over genuineness, then it's not going to be that eager to deal decisively with sin in its midst. But what Paul's talking about here is a decisive action to purge this person out. Just like he said back in verse 2, to remove this person from among you. Or as he says in verse 7, to cleanse out the old leaven that you might be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see what he's talking about here is the church. And he says the church is to be like an unleavened lump. And he actually uses images here from a Jewish festival, the festival of unleavened bread. That was a festival that was instituted in the Old Testament to commemorate Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. And it wasn't just talking about their physical relocation. What the, the lack of leaven in the bread in the Old Testament was primarily to emphasize that they were no longer in the midst of that corrupting society. See, when Israel came out of Egypt, they were heavily influenced by the paganism and the idolatry of Egypt. That's why as soon as they got out in the desert, what did they do? They built idols. They built a golden calf. They bowed down to it. They were heavily influenced. They were leavened by the corrupt society that was around them. And so, so they, God instituted a, a ceremony, a festival of unleavened bread, and they were to celebrate it along with the Passover in order to, in order to remember not only their deliverance, but in order to remember how the Lord had brought them out of that corrupting society. This is what he says the church is supposed to do. We are to celebrate because the Lord has declared us to be an unleavened lump of dough. That's what he says in verse 7. You're to, you're to cleanse out the old leaven because you really are unleavened. The Lord has already set his, he's already set his purposes on you. He's already, already declared you holy. He's already removed you as a, as a group of people from corrupt society. He's transferred you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. I need to live that way. I mean, let's face it. The vast majority of people, at least that I talk to, that have anything to do with the church and are no longer involved or don't want to have anything to do with the church, what do they cite? Hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. It's that the church is not being what God has called the church to be. A transformed, radiant life of holiness. A city set on a hill. A salt and light influence within the world. And so what we, what we are living out, unfortunately, too many times for the, the world, is a, is a 
duplicitous message. It's a hypocritical message. We're no longer looked at as an unleavened lump of dough. We're very much leavened by all that's in the world. People come to church like a social event. They come to church as a networking opportunity. They come to church as some religious show. But there's no distinction in the way they operate in their business, in their life, and in their family, in their tongue. So Paul says in verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Folks, this is what the church needs to be. This is what the world needs to see. Sincerity. Genuineness. Truthfulness. I always kind of don't know whether to laugh or cry when I, I read some of these blogs or read some of these church websites and their emphasis is on genuineness and authenticity and the way they validate it is the fact that they tolerate all kinds of sin. They're going to be genuine and transparent in the fact that they're going to laugh at the same jokes the world laughs at. They're going to be entertained by the same things the world's entertained by. They're going to conduct themselves in, in ways that are hardly dissimilar from the world and that's supposed to be their moniker of genuineness now what the world isn't looking for they're not looking for a mirror necessarily to see their own image they're looking for something transformative they're looking for a group of people who've been touched by the power of God changed by the power of God the gospel has made them new creatures in Christ and this is what Paul says you need to be and you're not going to get there. You're not going to get there if you're so arrogant as to go on tolerating in your midst people who claim to be Christians and don't live like it. People who want to come in and mar the testimony of Christ and smear His glory and detract from His testimony by going around professing themselves to be a part of some congregation, some church, while all the while during the week they're living like every other unbelieving pagan. He says, look, if you're going to be identified with the Lord, if you're going to worship Christ, if you're going to take His name, celebrate, worship, live in sincerity and truth. That means taking decisive action against sin. First of all, in your own heart and mind. Second of all, in the lives of others, if necessary. This is a, this is a strange and bizarre teaching for so many people. Many people have been in their church whole lives and never heard of anything like this. They've never seen anything like this. They've never been in a church service where a pastor or an elder stands up and calls someone's name and says they have been found in a pattern of sin. But then again, most people have been in churches where they see all around them sin tolerated. They see all around them hypocrisy, hypocrisy in the leadership, hypocrisy in the people around them. They dwell in churches where scandal after scandal is endured. And it grieves them. They're true believers, but it grieves them. 
They don't know that God's Word has an answer for that. Or maybe they've been to churches and they just can't get their minds around so much hypocrisy. That's not the Lord's will. It's not the gospel. The gospel is this. Satan is in the business of destroying your life. He's in the business of unraveling you in every way he can. And the only thing that will stop him both in this life and for eternity is the power of Christ. He has made that power available to you by dying on the cross so that he can redeem your life for himself. He can bring you under his care. He can bring you under his protection. He can put your unraveled life back together. He can heal what is broken. He can put back together what you've destroyed by your sin. He can bring you into a loving family, a fellowship like the church. He can take you to himself for eternity. That's the gospel. And you might have seen some people playing the game. But I want to tell you, when people have been touched by the gospel, their life is totally transformed from the inside out. Our desire for you today is that you wouldn't leave here today still just a bystander or still a pretender. Maybe thinking that you're a part of this church or this religious movement when you've never been changed. You're still living a duplicitous life. Our desire for you is that you would come to Christ and let Him make you sincere. Let Him make you genuine. Let Him transform you from the heart. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful that even when we are sometimes grieved by sin, you haven't left us with no clear pathway to deal with it, with no wisdom, with no definition for righteous behavior. We're thankful, Lord, that you love the church and you protect us and you guard us. We're thankful for your care and your protection over us. We're thankful for the ministry of the saints and even those who must call us to account. We're thankful, Lord, because we experience the blessings of righteousness. Our prayer, Lord, is for those outside of that care, outside of that protection. We pray for those who are here self-deceived today who need to know you. Lord, may they repent. May they find life in the Son. And for those, Lord, who are wayward, those even who have left us, Lord, they are outside of our reach at this point, it seems, but they're not outside of yours. Grant them repentance. Grant them humility. Grant them salvation. It's our prayer, Lord, hoping and trusting it is your will. And we offer it in your name.